0: Hello, welcome to this episode of Shaw's Communicable Research. My name's Andy Tattersall and I work at the School of Health and Related Research at the University of Sheffield. Over this series of occasional podcasts, we'll hear from researchers at Shaw and the work they undertake to tackle some of the world's biggest health challenges. We'll also hear from academics within the department and on occasion elsewhere, how they communicate their research and the methods they use. If you want to know more about Shaw, then you can find us on the web at the University of Sheffield and on Twitter at Shaw Sheffield. We're also on Facebook, so feel free to follow us for updates on there. Without further ado, let's get on with the latest episode. In this latest episode of the Shaw Communicable Research Podcast, I'm joined by Professor Cindy Cooper. Professor Cooper is Director of Sheffield Clinical Trials Research Unit, aka CTRU, and Professor of Health Services Research in Clinical Trials. In this episode, we're going to discuss the challenges of running randomised controlled trials, in particular looking at two studies relating to children, adolescents and dementia. Cindy's research interests include trials methodology, particularly pilot and feasibility studies, psychosocial aspects of long-term conditions, evaluation of psychotherapeutic interventions, as well as public and patient involvement in research. Cindy is chair of three NIHR-funded project steering committees and a member of the UK CRC Clinical Trials Unit CTU Executive Group. She has extensive experience of designing and implementing evaluations of complex health interventions in large multi-centre trials and other study designs. First of all, for anyone listening, can you briefly explain what a randomised controlled trial is?
1: So a randomised controlled trial is a way of evaluating whether some health intervention or health service actually works, whether it's effective. And the key features of a randomised controlled trial are one that the patients in the study are randomised. So they're allocated to their treatment by the equivalent of flipping a coin, and that's usually done by a computer these days, so that their clinician who's introducing them to the trial can't decide which arm they're going into. So the, the clinician won't know whether they're going to get the, the new treatment or the comparison. The second feature is that there's a control so that the intervention you're looking at and you're wanting to find out whether it works is compared with something else. And that can be just treatment as usual. It may be nothing at all, the equivalent of a placebo, or it might be the current best intervention that's available. And often you're looking to see, well, can we do even better with it? that with our new service.
0: And I would imagine that many people who are listening to this podcast think of drugs or technologies when they hear of randomised controlled trials but the work you've been doing and been involved with explored two very different issues that being phobias and dementia.
1: Yes so we do carry out studies of drugs and there's often many drugs that are being evaluated for mental health problems but we particularly focus on non-drug interventions as you say such as looking at phobia so we're looking often at psychotherapeutic interventions but they can also be any other type of intervention you you could have a, a peer support group for people with mental health problems for example or a health promotion campaign that could be an intervention so it doesn't just have to be drugs.
0: Taking those two one at a time, first of all you explored the common problem of phobias in children and this project was called Specific Phobias in Children Trial, also known as ASPECT. What was the problem that it set out to investigate and ultimately what did you find out?
1: Yes, so many children do have phobias. We were particularly concerned with phobias which were affecting their ability to to function in their life as they wanted to it needed to be at a specific level that was causing them problems. And the, the phobias that we were looking at were things like spiders, vomit, blood, injections. And the intervention was an intervention which is a kind of exposure intervention. So the child basically has to come face to face with the thing that they're frightened of. And that can take up to two or three hours because, for example, if they're frightened of dogs, they might be introduced to one dog at a great distance first, and then they given support to go up to the dog and get quite close to it, maybe even touch it. And there may be more dogs that are introduced, so that's that's exposure therapy. And we were looking at whether that improved their reduction of their fear and also impacted on their ability to function in their life in the way they wanted to.
0: And looking at the other end of the population, so you were involved in journeying through dementia project, and again, what did that aim to do?
1: So journeying Mm -hmm. through dementia aimed to try and get people with dementia some of their independence back, the the level of independence that they enjoyed prior to the onset of dementia. And it was to specifically to help them focus on things which were important to them. So that would be very individual to the individual. So for one person it might be just going into town shopping. For another it might be getting out to a musical event. But it was to try and enable them to do things on their own again rather than always being accompanied. There were two aspects to that intervention. One was the one-to-one sessions with the facilitator to help them set their goals and the the second was group interventions with other people with dementia to talk about general issues around living with dementia and trying to live independently
0: two very different population groups, and I imagine you had to have different strategies for each one, even though you're trying to get sort of like some similar outcomes in terms of kind of confidence building and, and things like that. Were there any common themes and lessons learned from running this r c t
1: Yes, we learned a lot, I think. The biggest thing, which was similar to both, is just trying to deliver research within health services is very challenging because the staff within particularly all sorts of mental health services are so stretched themselves just to deliver the the normal care that trying to deliver research as well is sometimes just a step too far. And they're not always very familiar with research methods, so sometimes things that we take for granted such as how do you explain a research study to a patient without influencing them uh, in one direction or the other? Because what you don't want them to find is that they accept coming into the trial, then they're randomised to, say, the control arm, and then are really disappointed. So you've got to train staff to be able to explain the trial in a way that they don't feel they're getting an inferior service when they get the service that they're randomised to. And that's just one challenge. There's lots of turnover in, in services with people going off sick and so we were having to constantly train people and support them. So it's just really the, the demands of a very busy overburdened service alongside trying to do the research as well.
0: Yeah so these studies and others that you've undertaken with yourself and your group must mean bringing together lots of research experts and I can imagine that is also working with people outside of Sheffield so that in itself must be tricky as well but also quite rewarding.
1: Yes I would say both so we have been working with investigators outside Sheffield for some time now, pre-COVID, and now I can't quite work out how we did it before because obviously since COVID we've learned how to do remote working, we've got Zoom, we've got all these ways of working, video conferencing, whereas before all the meetings were just done by teleconferencing, so we weren't even seeing people and we would often make a lot more effort to travel up to different sites to meet the investigators. But now, to be quite honest, you can you can run a full trial without ever meeting somebody in person, and you still develop the same good working relations. I think you're sort of all in it together, and it works it works well.
0: So it sounds like it's giving you more options, really. Yes,
1: it has given us more options. We can work with investigators all over the country. We've not done any remote studies with people abroad, or we have done one study actually. But yes, it does give us more options.
0: And in terms of participation from the practitioners that you'll be working with, those people who are working with children and those people working with dementia sufferers, and also the actual participants, I can imagine that's problematic, especially if there's people in systems that are set very much in their ways. Because, you know, you've got very, these are very large, complex systems. What do you do to ensure that there's some level of consistency in terms of their involvement throughout the RCT?
1: So I think one of the big things which we came across particularly in the children and adolescent mental health services was that the care pathways in the different sites across the country are so different. So it takes you a long time to actually work out what the care pathways are, how you refer somebody into a care pathway or into a service and who's making the decisions about whether a child is eligible for a service. So it's not so much only that you've got something that a protocol for delivering an intervention within the trial, but that it has to be taken into account all the variations across the country and it can actually take you quite a long time to work out what these different services are. And you think you've just about cracked it and then you bring another site along and your your intervention doesn't quite work in that site then the way it's being delivered. So you've got to do a lot of preparatory work. And ideally, before you start the trial, you have all your sites on board and you talk through the pathways with them. But sometimes that doesn't happen because often you think, oh, we'll have enough uh, NHS sites if we're working with, say, six hospitals. And then when it comes to it, they recruit slower than you think. So you have to bring on another four. And then you have to start again working out how the trial is going to fit into their service.
0: CAMS, which stands for Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, has got varied care pathways. So how challenging was it in terms of your research given that mental health, especially with children and adolescents, is a very complex condition. It's been very much impacted by the last three years as well and in terms of the services that are offered and, and what is accessible to people. So it's constantly changing and may change over the course of a study. What was it like in terms of participation retention? Was that an issue? And and obviously the last three years being a big factor.
1: So I think we managed to. There's in terms of retention, there are two sort of, sort of sides to that. There's re- retaining the sites and retaining the actual participants. In terms of the participants themselves, we didn't really have any problems. I think there were a few children that did drop out of the study because of the time it took them to get into the service or sometimes people do recover anyway, or they're too anxious, they're too anxious to continue. I think it was more difficult really retaining sites because again, I've said because of the workload or they're very busy. Or perhaps the therapists on the ground were really enthusiastic about it, but the managers less so or sometimes vice versa. A manager would say, yes, we want to be involved in this research but then the actual staff on the ground felt they were too busy. So sometimes it was more difficult actually to retain the sites in the study for the duration than it was for the individual uh, participants. Because in some ways for the patients, they might be getting access to a service that they otherwise wouldn't have and that's often an attractive part of a trial is that you, you get more access to a service that you wouldn't otherwise
0: I suppose like with mental health issues and, and, and young people it's it can be progressive. People by the time they get into the system they might be feeling much better because it's a over demanded system. So I'd imagine in terms of like dementia, going looking at the other participants, people with mild dementia. Obviously dementia is progressive. It can be very, very quick, it can it can take a long time for it to progress. So I'd imagine that must have been something that you had to factor in as well.
1: Yes, so in not nearly all trials, whatever population you have, you have quite a variety. You'll probably have different ranges of age and also of severity. And you can make very specific criteria, so you've got a very tightly sort of defined population. But then that will rule out a lot of the patients you would normally see in a service. So ideally you have a wide and diverse population in your trial, so it reflects the patients and services. But then, as you say, that means that you've got what we call a lot of noise in the system, so it's hard to see clear endpoints. So that's why clinical trials tend to be so big, and we often have three, four hundred people in a trial, and it can be up to a thousand, depending on how much variation we have in characteristics of patients and their condition to so take into account the, the level of what we call heterogeneity.
0: Yeah, and going back to the mental health study. So we know the system is very overburdened, not just for, for children, but for, for adults. So I imagine there's a, a reluctance by therapists and trusts and professionals because of the fact of their sheer workloads to get involved. So how do you buy get them to buy into this research? How do you get across the importance of these trials? Again, going back to what I said initially, when people think what you can do, this is a clinical trial?
1: Yes, I think, well, often what we're trying to... What we're trying to evaluate is interventions and services which are actually more cost-effective, so they're using less resource, and that's the way that they're attractive to the service. So in the phobia service, we were comparing the usual CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, which takes sort of six to ten sessions, with a therapy OST, one-session therapy, which is done in one session. So it's attractive to the service because half of their patients will go into the one session therapy so actually they're saving a lot of time and money and also we provide the training so they'd be getting training free which they wouldn't otherwise get so as long as you're trying to trial something which is better or cheaper or more cost effective then it is attractive to the service
0: ultimately what kind of lessons from these trials you know what have you learned from them what can be applied to current and future research
1: well particularly within the the phobia study and the and the dementia study I think what we need to do is bolster up the research infrastructure within trusts so the the staff need more training to be able to undertake research it's it should be sort of like the medical pathway where research is part of the, the training and also they're allowed some time to be involved in research because we can't push services forward we can't make them more efficient and more effective if the staff on the ground don't have the time and the expertise to to collaborate with us one of the things that is usually effective is if you develop research champions in trusts or in services where there is somebody who spends a lot of their time and gets really experienced in carrying out research and then they can support their peers in services so i think and this is not new people have been saying this for a long time that just the infrastructure for clinicians to be involved in research is required in in the NHS.
0: Yeah. And going forward what's the future plans relating to this research?
1: Well, we have actually been funded to carry out dissemination of the Aspect trial, the phobia study, and that's ongoing at the moment, and also another study that we had in lego therapy in schools, we've been funded also to provide to disseminate that further and they've both been highlighted as important to the the national program of research so i'm i'm confident that we can get the research out to the clinicians who need to know about it
0: yeah i've seen a very colourful animation into <laughs> the lego
1: <laughs> yes yes we've it's very important that we are able to tell people about the results in a way that's interesting to them and understandable so now there's a lot more emphasis on producing videos and animations and to be honest i think Everybody finds them more enjoyable than the dry papers that we normally produce.
0: Well, I want to thank you for your time, Cindy. I know you're exceptionally busy, but I think uh, I've, I've learned a lot from this, and I'm sure people who listen to this will do as well.
1: Thank you.